everybody. What is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today, we're continuing through the book of Romans, Romans chapter eight, and I am joined by another one of our institute students, Chase Ray. Howdy, y'all. And Chase, what team do you serve with? I serve with the college ministry. In Romans eight, I gave you a big one. I know, it is a big one. And for a lot of people, me included, this is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. It's worth reading, reading again, studying, but rather than convince y'all that it's the greatest, I'd rather answer a couple questions with the time we have. Which is an interesting take. Yeah. You could convince us. I could convince y'all. Maybe not in the time that we have. But the questions that I want to answer instead are, if I accept the love of Christ and trust in the gospel, what then? What is the life of the Christian? I think Romans 8 answers these questions. So Paul has been posing questions for a few chapters before this. He's made his best argument to fully explain the good news of the gospel. And when Romans 8 comes, there's a noticeable pivot. It's gone from what is the gospel to how does faith in this make our lives different? What's the solution and now resolution of our lives? So let's hop right in. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore. Therefore, what have we been taught to ask when we see that word, Emma? Well, what's the therefore? Therefore. Exactly. So Paul's coming off of dropping the mic and answering the question of the problem of sin in chapter 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There's a claim of victory and a final answer, the work of Christ. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. What? Can we just stop there? Condemnation no longer exists. I can't condemn myself. I'm not condemned by God. There's no possibility of condemnation for anything in my past, present, or future. Why? For those who are in Christ Jesus, those of us who've opted in to identify with his life, death, and resurrection. No condemnation. Hey, I got a question for you. Yeah. So I've heard that there are parents listening to this podcast with their kids driving to school. How would you define condemnation for a kid? Condemnation for a kid is guilt. Yeah? It's guilt. It's I have done something that contradicts a right way from an authority. When I have condemnation from my parents, they have laid something out, and probably for good reason, that I should fall in line with, and I've chosen to go a different direction. And because what they said was right, and what I did was wrong, there's guilt, and there's a penalty. There's something wrong and off that needs to be corrected. That's condemnation. Super clear. Thanks. And what does that mean? When we, when we have no condemnation. When we have no condemnation, it means we have freedom. Emma, what do you think the evidence of that freedom is? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Totally. That's what Paul says. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And it's not law as in rules. It's law as in power. So there's a new power that we're compelled by as believers. It's a good one that leads to life, and it's God himself, his spirit working in us. That's really what all of verses 1 through 11 are about. God has redeemed our chance to live a holy life before him. We were unable to do that apart from the intervention of Christ. We're slaves to sin. We were unable to please God or to be right with him. 
But with the Spirit, we can be obedient. We're not robots, but we're compelled with God in us. We can still choose to cooperate with the Spirit or turn Him away and spurn Him. That's why Paul calls the Roman church to set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Something comforting to me is that this isn't a cold, transactional behavior modification. Paul just calls it adoption to a good God, to an Abba, a Father. We've been claimed, and how much better and more compelling is that to just follow as a child rather than try harder as an adult? We enjoy a relationship and want to just love God in response to how He's loved us. And as a result of that, we look different. In verses 18 through 28, I love Paul's realism. This next part of Romans 8, it's an acknowledgement and honesty that life is hard, even as children of God. He talks about suffering and waiting and groaning and weakness and pains and not knowing what to pray. He gets it. He doesn't call the believer to ignore it. There's all sorts of consequences of sin and evil still playing out all around us and in the world, and we don't have to deny that. So we live in this reality as believers, seeing redemption in our lives and God's intention to undo all that's broken. We have a future hope, and it's our duty to be mindful of it. That's where Paul's headed. Someday the believer will be glorified with God in a world that's free from the presence of sin, and it'll be completely good like it was in the beginning. In the meantime, we're helped and cared for by the Holy Spirit. Emma, I have a question for you. Sure. How would you interpret Romans 8.28, a verse that we've all heard before? Yeah, Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And that can cause us to question sometimes because it says, if you love God, things work together for good But sometimes things don't feel good. They're hard. We ask why. And we're we're kind of left wondering, or we can be at least, like, is this actually true? Because our experiences don't always seem to match it. And I think it's helpful. Whenever we interpret Scripture, we want to use Scripture, interpret Scripture with Scripture. So another verse that has a similar feeling is Jeremiah 29, 11. Another popular one, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, to prosper you, not to harm you, give you a hope and a future. And then it's like, well, what about when somebody gets cancer or somebody dies? And it's like, not to harm you. Like, cancer seems pretty pretty harmful. But what we don't realize is we look at that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, in isolation. And if you zoom out, you actually see that The prophet Jeremiah is speaking to Israel, and he's saying, hey, God's got a plan in the context of a warning that a foreign army is about to rise up against them, and they're about to lose. Like, things are about to get pretty tough. And so that verse is actually a message of hope in what's about to be a lot of devastation and destruction. But God still had a plan. And what when I look at Jeremiah 29, 11, and knowing that context, and I put it up next to Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. I'm left humble, like, man, I am not God. Isaiah 55, 9, for his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. My plans don't always look like God's plans, but he's weaving them all together in a way that we can't understand because there is this reality that we live in a broken world, and so we should expect tough stuff, but we can also get this picture of, hey, we know the end of the story. So we know that one day when either we go to heaven or Jesus comes back to this earth, 
We're going to be restored, and there's not going to be any tears or crying or pain. The steps along the way, I can't, I can't map them out. I don't know what, it, what it's going to look like. I don't know what the rest of my life is going to look like, but I do know that God's working in it and that nothing happens on accident. That's awesome. I think you hit the nail on the head. We have to read things in context and understand that um, good is often not what we thought. Romans 8.28, I think, should be comforting to us. The drawback is, like you mentioned, in the context of Israel, we must be willing to admit that God's definition of good and the path towards that good is often different from ours. It's better that way, too, because he's God. Yeah. That's why we have to read verses 29 and 30 with verse 28. Paul says that that good will look like conformity to Christ, possible through justification, in progress through our sanctification, and someday, like you mentioned, through glorification. I'm in for that. Yeah. Finally, we can tie a bow on things, and it's a simple one. God loves us. He really loves us. The proof Under no obligation to us other than to enact justice, he sent his son, leaving heaven to bear the wrath of that judgment in our place, dying and resurrecting. I can't think of anything more costly or more loving than that. If that's God's track record and God's character doesn't change, we have every reason to trust his care in our day-to-day lives. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, job loss, broken relationships, moral failure, sickness, anything in all of creation. Can any of that undo God's love for us? Paul is decisive in saying no. We've started with no condemnation. We've seen what it means to live life as a Christian, and we end with no separation. In terms of responding to all this, I like Paul's assertion. He says, for I am sure. Are we sure? That's so good, Chase. Are we sure? Like, what do you think about God's love? I want you to take some time today. Think about it. But that's all we have time for together. But I'm so glad we're on this journey together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe, because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.